Good morning, church. Uh, as BJ mentioned, I'm Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Austin Oaks Church. And if you're a guest with us, just want to say welcome. Uh, so glad you're here. We're in the book of Acts, and I'll give you a little overview of what this series is about. But if you have been here and, and you know me, I, I, I'm making two uh, commitments to you today, two promises. One is I got this little clock. I'm going to be done on time today. That's, that's promise number one. Second one is, is I'm not going to shed a tear this whole message. <laughs> and just so you know, there's a couple guys that are taking, have actually really favorable odds in the back. If you want to place a bet on either one of those right now, uh, you may be able to cover your lunch as you leave here today. Uh, we are, as I mentioned in the book of Acts, uh, and if you're new to Christianity or checking this out, the book of Acts is, is a transitional book from the Gospels when Jesus was here on earth and tells the story of his life to the early church and, and how it was changing from Old Testament to New Testament. And so it's a real interesting book, super helpful for us, but it's a narrative story telling what happened. And as we understand this book, we have to understand it describes what happened. It's not necessarily prescriptive for what we're supposed to do as a church. That's helpful to understand because everything you see in there is not meant to be replicated today. It's kind of like when you're remodeling your kitchen in your home, right? You're in transition. You live and you do certain things in your home that are totally different than you did before the kitchen was under remodel and after the kitchen is under remodel. But, but that's kind of this book. It's very transitional. So we're going to look at some stories. You can still draw principles out of it, but you often go to other books in the New Testament to see what is the teaching specifically uh, of the early church and how are we to understand that. So we'll interpret that, but, but we're going to look at some stories. Stories. And, and this book is about Luke, the author Luke, writing to a man who, who he's explaining to him what's happening in the church, how this movement called Christianity and the gospel is spreading throughout the world. And Luke is present at a lot of these journeys as the apostle Paul is spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this story takes place as Paul is on a missionary journey. He's outside of Jerusalem, so the gospel is now spreading into Gentile territory, and he's up getting closer to Rome and around that part of uh, Asia and so forth, moving in that direction. And people are starting to hear the gospel and respond to it. And Paul has a vision that takes him to this spot near Philippi, and he begins sharing the gospel here. And we're going to see three examples of the gospel being shared and how people respond to it. These are some of the first church members that came into the church that Paul is basically planting in Philippi. So we'll see those stories today and we're going to learn a little bit about what that means and what the gospel looks like and, and how we can apply that in our lives and respond to it personally or share with others. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Acts chapter 16. You can bring it up on your phone or in your Bible or you can follow along on the screen if you don't have a, a Bible with you. Acts chapter 16. We're going to run from verses 13 through 34 as we look at these three stories. Acts 16 verses 13 through 34. Let me pray, and we'll jump into our message today. Father God, thank you so much for, uh, for your truth, for your word, for worship, for music that communicates truth and, and speaks to our hearts in unique ways, and, and for the gathering of your people. Lord, we are here this is amazing to believe. We are here because of the things we read in these stories today. We are thousands of miles from where 
Christianity began because people brought this truth to places where it didn't exist. And we take for granted, and we and sometimes wrongly think, oh, Christianity, that's America. America is a Christian nation, and we almost think that we're the center of it, but that's simply not true at all. In fact, we are not even the majority of Christians anymore. Your gospel has impacted people everywhere it's gone, and we get to dive into the history of that starting today. So Lord, as we do so, may your spirit, as he always does, open our hearts and our minds to these truths and apply them in our lives so that we might be your church in this city and in our neighborhood. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jason was a student in my senior physics class when I was a high school teacher. I started, maybe you don't know, I started uh, my career as a high school teacher and a coach, and so I taught physics, uh, was one of my subjects, and, and, and every semester, um, I would do something, actually every quarter with my senior students, I would, I would write in my lesson plan book to, to talk life. I just put that in my lesson plan at some point after I'd gotten to know them a little bit. We're going to talk life Today. And I do that because for me, uh, the last half of my senior year in high school until the end of my junior year in college were four years where I made the absolute most worst decisions I ever made in my life. Uh, my life was kind of spiraling downwards in a lot of different ways, and I was in horrible relationships, and the behaviors and things I was engaged with weren't healthy. Now, I, I still kept up an image on the outside, but in terms of who I was on the inside, it was a total mess. And after my junior year of college was when I first started following Jesus. So it was a huge change for me. So I saw these students, these seniors that I had in class is on the cusp of where I was. And knowing some of the challenges and the decisions they were going to make, I wanted to just share a little bit of my journey. And I'd tell them about the things I did and and the impact that it had, the long-term impact that it had. And then at the end of each time, I would weave in and share uh, my testimony of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I was a public school teacher, and I know some people think, well, you can't do that in a public school. Well, I just want to tell you, you absolutely can uh, share personally what you believe. I would never uh, bring the gospel out and and ask them to believe in it or or do it in any way. I I always followed the guidelines that I'm under authority, and I would respect my leaders, but I also know that I'm able to share personally what happened in my life, and I just left it at that, knowing that if, if God was working through it, he would touch them, and, and sure enough, I'd have many opportunities of people that come up to me outside of class or afterwards and ask me more questions, and I get to share the gospel with them personally in a place that was outside that environment. But Jason was a student that always uh, challenged everything I said about that. He'd come up, and he had a very secular worldview, and he'd challenge this, and he'd challenge that, and he, he would mock kind of a lot of the things that I was sharing, and we had a good enough relationship that he could do that. We'd keep talking. He'd keep challenging, and all through his senior year, he challenged that stuff and didn't come from that kind of background, and his family didn't believe that, and so he kind of got a challenge every time I would bring that up. So it was an incredible surprise when two years later, I get contacted by Jason, and he says, hey, Mr. McCartney, I just wanted you to know uh, I became a Christian in college. 
So I got involved in a, a Christian organization. It was at the school I was going to, and, and, uh, and someone shared the gospel with me, and I trusted Christ. And he said, I, I wanted to contact you because you were the first person to ever share the gospel with me. And he said, even though I constantly challenge you and constantly ask you questions, you continue to tell me, and you continue to do it kindly and, and, and keep in a relationship with me. And, and I think from Jason's example, it, it taught me something that I needed to learn even more than it probably taught Jason something. You see, I don't know about you, but I know at that season of my life, I always thought there are certain types of people that will accept the gospel. And once you start sharing, you kind of know, hey, I think this person is really closer. I think this person might, they're the, they're the gospel type. They'd make a great Christian, right? We all have these things in our heads where we think these are the people that are going to receive the gospel. And if I just give them that message, they're going to do it. And what I learned from that is that there's no certain type of person who accepts the gospel. And there's not even a set way in which the gospel always needs to be shared. And as we look at these stories today, I think there's two questions that they kind of answer for us and and reasons why Luke wrote them down, why the Holy Spirit inspired them to instruct us today. And these two questions are are really around that same theme. Who is the gospel for? Who's the gospel for? The Bible talks about that all the time and these stories will help highlight that. And secondly, how does the gospel work? Who's it for and how does it work? So if you have your Bible, let's jump into verse 13 where we see this first interaction uh, Paul has with three different people in this story. The first one starts in verse 13, and it says, On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. So let me tell you a little bit. So, so Paul's in non-Jewish territory. Even though synagogues, Jewish people had spread out all over, if you know um, from the past messages or reading the book of Acts, Paul's M.O. was typically to find a synagogue at a place where he was, start with those religious people, share the gospel, and then move to the, the Gentiles, as they call them, the non-Jewish people after that. Well, here there's not even a synagogue. So he's in a territory where uh, for them to have synagogues in that time, you'd had to have 10 men, 10 men who were Jewish in a city before you could start a synagogue. So that's not even present in this place. So they went outside the city and went to a place where he probably had heard some you know, religious people were gathering there in this, near this river, and this is where he's at. So you can imagine the context of it. It says they sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them there was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agree. So here we, we see our first example of Paul bumps into this woman who, who did 
like dye work, did clothing and dye work from Thyatira, which if you know anything about the culture of that time, the purple dye was some of the most expensive dye. She was probably a very successful business person, probably had a place in Thyatira and a place here in Philippi. So for her to own two homes was pretty significant. You think of what she did. She invited, it was Paul and Silas and two other companions. Luke would have been there and probably Timothy. So she was able to bring four people immediately into her home and host them, you're talking about a person of pretty significant means. You're also talking about a female that in their culture was usually kind of secondary. You see, Luke is telling us something very specific in the sense that the very first convert we see in Philippi is a woman, that the gospel is not just for men, and most religions at that time were male-dominated. It's for all types. There's no type for it. She was a successful person. She was a a religious person. Like, she was already worshiping, but she didn't know the whole gospel. She just knew some truths, probably, or some things about God. So she was very religious. She was probably successful. She probably looked put together on the outside. But the fact is, it says, the message spoke to her, and God opened her heart, and she accepted the gospel that Paul was preaching. You see, you don't know from the outside whether a person needs the gospel or not, regardless of how well put together or how put together their life is. The gospel is not just for those seemingly messy people. Everyone needs it, no matter how much they look put together on the outside. The gospel is for everyone. Everyone is fallen and separated from God by sin. Likewise, you're going to see in this next example is another female. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Luke gives two examples of females right out of the the gates. You know, there's lots of talk uh, in our modern society that Christianity is oppressive towards women. But I challenge you to show me any other world religion that's brought more freedom and more advantage and is uplifted and and lifted up women more than Christianity has. Everywhere Christianity has spread, the circumstances for women have increased phenomenally because the gospel doesn't see men and women as being two different levels. It sees them as being equal in God's eyes. There's neither male or female in terms of the value in God's eyes. And we see that right here. The first converts we see in this book are two women, which no other religion of that time would do something like that. Second story as we continue. Um, We see uh, one day it says, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. So here you see another example of Paul's message and the power of the gospel working. Now we don't see in the narrative this woman coming to faith. It doesn't tell us that story. But she's sandwiched between two people in which they do 
And so many believed it was just assumed that, hey, these are all interactions, and Paul, as he interacted with each of them, came. In fact, it's consistent with what we see in the gospel a lot. If you go back to Jesus' ministry, Jesus had many people that he confronted and called demons out of and cast them out that eventually followed him, one being Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was someone who served with Jesus for many, many years, traveled with him, and took care of his physical needs in many different ways, and and it was a woman that had means, but she was also one that the Bible tells us was possessed by seven different demons, and when Jesus met her, he confronted that and cast those demons out, and from that, she came to, to believe in him, and so that could be very similar for this woman here. But she's a very different type of person than what we see in our first story. She's not accepted in society. She's not highly successful in the world's eyes. She's not a a person that's in the know. She's kind of an outcast. She's oppressed by these business people who use her and her demonization. Rather than helping her and and helping her escape that, they take advantage of her in her situation for their own personal benefits and profits. And we see that the gospel is for people like that as well. Everyone needs the gospel. And there's no certain type of person that the gospel is for. You see, the gospel is not natural to any type of person, but it impacts all people. And this woman is an example of that. Some of us have been saved out of pretty extreme circumstances. Maybe it's addictions or lawlessness or crime or prison you know maybe you felt similar to this woman as just a person who is taken advantage of or overlooked or oppressed in society but the gospel is every bit as much for you as it is for the people who look like they're successful in our world and Luke is showing us that in the midst of this story The story goes on uh, from this uh, in verse 19. It says, Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas, dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace, and the whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they said. They shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and when they were thrown into prison, the jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Now this would have been a pretty nasty place. If you have seen pictures like in movies of old dungeons and castles, that's exactly what you'd see here. The inner dungeons would have been probably the lowest place within the jail system. So it would have been dark and dank and, and oftentimes it, the excrement from other prisoners like drizzled and dropped down into that particular spot. The jailer got to determine where each prisoner was put. He was responsible for making sure they weren't uh, escaping or whatever was happening. So this prisoner this, or this prison guard took Paul and Silas and put them put in, in the most difficult and darkest and hardest spot in the prison. Strapped them into stocks that would have held their feet, you know, strapped their ankles and been extremely painful. After they'd been beaten tremendously already, 
probably open wounds. Now they're put in prison and put in stocks in an incredibly painful scenario. He said, a mob quickly formed, excuse me, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. So let me, let me explain this a little bit more of what's going on. See, in their time, if you were a prison guard, you were responsible for the security of those prisoners. If they were to escape or, or get away on your command, then you took their place for whatever crime they had committed. And as we've seen earlier in the, gospel of, or in the book of Acts, uh, Christians that were being put in prison were often being brought out and stoned and, and killed because of that. And so he probably assumed that's exactly what was going on with them. Paul and Silas probably knew this wasn't a good outlook for them. It wasn't a good scenario. So when the prison doors were open and this jailer sees that, he recognizes, okay, they've escaped. I'm dying. I'm dead. I'm going to be publicly, you know, condemned for their crimes. And, and you're looking at a guy, a typical prison guard in that time would have probably been a, a former Roman soldier, probably a fairly high-ranking one that would have had a lot of power and known what he's doing. And this was kind of a sort of a cush retirement job. You know, maybe, hey, you can go in here, you just watch these prisoners. They're pretty much, you know, shackled. There's not a whole lot's going to happen to them. So you're talking about a hardened kind of military, secular, embittered guy that's now a prison guard, you know, a, a very unique person in that scenario. And he's even torturing Paul and Silas after they've been beaten. And he's ready to die. He says, I don't want to be humiliated by being hung up out there and, and taking their crimes. I'm just going to kill myself. And we see here that Paul says, stop. Don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Man, there's so much we can learn from this example as well. Uh, here's a, a secular, hardened, harsh, probably embittered type of a person, real hard man, that, that here he's receiving the gospel. He's miraculously opened up to the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, showing us once again there's no certain type of person who the gospel is for. The gospel is not natural to any type of person, but it impacts all types. You know, we partner with a, a few ministries that work with inmates as well, and, and this last month, uh, one of the leaders in that ministry shared with me that we, we saw 10 different inmates trust Christ 
uh, for the first time through those ministries of people here that, that share and write letters to those in prison. And so that's a beautiful picture that there's no place that the gospel doesn't write reach. There's no type of person. There's no race for the gospel. There's no nationality for the gospel. In fact, look at it worldwide. Do you know that every other world religion has a national and even racial hub that it's primarily focused on or has the majority of its people? Every other world religion, you look them up, there's one area that's primarily represented by that religion. Do you know that Christianity doesn't have any of that. It started with the Jews in Jerusalem and it spread everywhere. Now we tend to think, oh, Europe and and America. Yeah, it did spread to those spots, but we're not the majority anymore. Latin America, Africa has many more Christians than we have here in Western America. It is much more dominant. The gospel is spreading there. Even in the Middle East, places where they can't talk about it, phenomenal numbers of people are coming to faith. There is no nationality. Here's this man's a Gentile. He's a Roman. They were the ones oppressing the Jews, and yet the gospel is spreading through Rome showing us that the gospel is not for any race or nationality or person or type. It impacts everyone. Jesus came to save every type of person. And Luke is showing us that. But there's one other question I want to touch on as we look through this. Not just who, that's important. It is so important that we get past our prejudices that we get past our types, our stereotypes of who we think will receive the gospel and who we don't, because we don't make that decision. We don't decide who will receive the gospel. We only decide whether we're going to share it or not and give them the opportunity. But we can also see in this story a little bit of how the gospel works. And I want you to see that as well so that you know better how to live out the gospel in different scenarios that you might find yourself, just as Paul did in each of these scenarios. How does the gospel work? Well, we see in Lydia's life, the gospel, it worked through reason. With Lydia, it worked through reason. And in her story, you know, they're sitting by the river and Paul's just speaking to them and and God opened their heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. So it was just, basically he was just reasoning from the scriptures. That's what that term means in there. He was just telling her about who Jesus was and that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament truth. And, and, And in that conversation, she just accepted it. We need to know the gospel is a very reasonable faith. It's not some mystical, mythical thing that can't be understood. It's not over-spiritualized. It's anchored to actual historical events and people and truth. And if you're objective about it, you could even say that the gospel is the best, most reasonable answer for almost every issue and topic you might face. Like my background was science. When I first became a Christian, dealing with creation and evolution and all those things was a huge issue for me. And I thought, how do I set my mind apart and just believe this stuff? But what I did is I began reading more and learning more. I began to realize it's much more rational than I thought. Like to believe that things just came out of nothing. Scientists will say, hey, it just came out of nothing. That's kind of the background. But scientists don't believe that in any other area of science. Everything has a cause and effect. 
That's half of science. We couldn't do any science if that wasn't true. And yet, to go back to the very beginning, they just have nothing for that. They can't explain that very beginning. We as Christians can't explain where God came from. Both of them have that, uh oh, how do you get to the very beginning? But I think here's the difference. Did something come from nothing and then all this phenomenal design and intelligence just come out of absolute total randomness? Or when you look around at our world, when you look at the intricacy of the human body, when you look at the beauty of creation, does it look more like an intelligent being maybe put this together or did it just happen randomly? There are tough questions on both ends, but what's the most reasonable explanation? If you have kids, have your kids' rooms ever gotten neater by them not doing anything? No. It takes an intelligent being to go in and arrange things. They call that entropy, the law of entropy, right, to do some things like that. Good and evil. Another huge question that comes in for it. Good and evil exists whether you believe in a God or you're an atheist. They're, they're present. That's a fact. But how do you explain good and evil if you don't have a God who maybe defines it? You, we can use that as an argument against God, but it's really a better argument for God. Because if there's no God, then who defines good and evil? Why can't I make evil my good and just go around doing evil and just randomly say that's what's good to me? There's no basis for it, but all of us have some innate thought of good and bad. We may have different things in those categories, but we all have this idea this is something that's good and this is something that's bad. So maybe a better narrative is that there is a good God who created this world, but he allowed evil at some point into the process, and it's part of his greater sovereign plan. That's the gospel. It's incredibly reasonable. And I love how Charles Spurgeon said it when he said this. He says, the gospel is like a lion. You don't need to defend a lion. You just need to let him out. Church, we don't have to be afraid of the gospel seeming unreasonable. It is the most reasonable truth you have ever believed in your life. It's not just rational, but it's the most reasonable thing. Second thing we see is in this woman that Paul encountered uh, the slave uh, says he, he sees her, she's crying out, she's demon-possessed, and he just turns to her and he commands this spirit to come out of her, and it does. And I think what that teaches us is the gospel's not just reasonable, it's powerful. The gospel works through power. That it conquers the powers of this world. Any power that this world has, the gospel is stronger than it. It's part of Jesus' death and resurrection of overcoming death. It's not just a rational message, even though it is. It's much more powerful than that. It's the power of God, as Paul wrote, unto salvation for all those who believe. And we see this in the slave girl. You see this in Jesus' ministry over and over again. And even though it's less common to us, maybe as Westerners, that doesn't mean it's any less true. We may not see this kind of power in the gospel as frequently as we see other things, but it's still the truth. It still happens over and over again. I know, as you know, uh, we served and ministered in a border for 15 years, and, and one thing I found there after several years was there's a lot more spiritual dynamics in that context than any place I'd ever been, and I felt really ill-equipped 
And so I finally got a hold, I read a lot of books on spiritual warfare, finally got a hold of one that I felt was practical and simple enough for a guy of my intelligence to understand. And so it was super helpful and it was so good. I had our whole leadership team read it. And then I thought on a whim, I thought, I'm going to call the author of this book. His name is Carl Payne. And see, if, on a whim, if he would come down and do some training for our team. And I called him, just a total winger, thinking, hey, would you come explain our situation? And he flew down for a whole weekend with our leaders and did a whole bunch of training for us. And it was transformational for how I finally understood better how to confront spiritual power in situations that I never knew how to. And even for our team that had experienced a lot of things growing up and didn't know how to handle it and was even afraid to talk about it because they just felt, we can't talk about this in church. I'd encourage you, if, if you think that this is a hoax, find a missionary couple. Find a couple that's been out on the field and ask them if they've ever seen God work in this way. And I, I guarantee you, you'll hear stories that they often probably don't share with a lot of people. The gospel is not just reasonable, it's powerful. And it impacts people's lives in the most powerful way. The last one, I, I love this story as well. Uh, is Paul and Silas are in prison and they're strapped to these, you know, stocks and the whole situation's going on and, you know, what's going on here? And this, this is how I would summarize this and I think it's so important because I think this impacts and, and affects so many of you is, is the gospel works through unexpected circumstances and sacrificial examples. That's the third way I think we can see in unexpected circumstances and sacrificial example. God often orchestrates circumstances into our lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, you're not going to like this. You're not going to like what I'm about to say. That's okay. You don't have to like me. I'm not that likable of a guy anyway. So just, but, but circumstances in your life are often orchestrated by God for his purposes, not for yours. See, if we were modern-day Christians in, in, in this scenario, we would go, oh, man, you know, Silas, God must not be working here. I mean, we came to share the gospel, and we're in prison. we, we got to find a better spot where God's moving because it's not happening here. Or we might say, you know, God wants my life to be fulfilling. He, he's here to give me the most abundant life I possibly could. And man, I just got beaten and I'm strapped in prison. This can't be his will. I got to find a different spot. God wants me to be happy. He, he wants me to be comfortable. That's the whole purpose for why he saved me. So, so what am I doing here in prison? We must have done something wrong. We got to find a different spot to go do ministry. Nothing could have been further from the truth. And Paul and Silas, I think, knew that. You see, how else do you reach a prison guard like this man in the story? Other than being a powerful example. I bet if Paul, I, I, I'm just as Chad, okay, there's the Bible. This is Chad over here, right? You believe that, you question this. But let's, hypothetically, if Paul may have bumped into this prison guard on the street sometime and just said, hey, you know that Jesus loves you and he's got a wonderful plan for your life. How do you think that guy would have responded to that? He probably would have mocked him and laughed at him, probably backhanded him. But when a guy who's lived his whole life 
using physical power to gain control and to influence people. And he suddenly sees that it has no impact on Paul and Silas. So much so that after he's been beaten by governing authorities and then he's treated harshly by this jailer, instead he saves that jailer's life by saying, hey, hey all the prisoners, we're still here. How do you think an example like that impacts a guy that's lived a pretty hard life like him? You see, a sacrificial act opens his heart to be ready to hear the gospel. You see, some people will say this term, and I don't like this phrase, but I get what they're saying. They say, hey, share the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's a horribly wrong statement. I get where you're getting at, but, but you can't share the gospel without words. It has to have words. Don't say, I just live the gospel and that's enough. People can't believe in Jesus unless you tell them about it. But what's true in that statement is this. And what Paul did is he said, I sometimes have to start not with words. There's some people that are in a place that the life that they've faced, they don't want to hear that simple truth. They need to see it in your life before they're ever willing to hear it. I remember a couple in our small group uh, who was brand new to our church. Some friends of it had invited them. This is when we were in Laredo. And they, and they were two weeks into our small group. I don't even think they were believers at this point. But their marriage was kind of troubled. And they were in this group that was a marriage group we were doing. And two weeks in, and, and they're kind of checking things out. He's like super stoic, not saying a whole lot in the group. And, and that week, he suddenly has a, a phenomenal, like crazy medical diagnosis that's just horrific for him. Like life-threatening. And so she, they have six kids, and, and she's trying to manage the kids and, and take care of him. He's out of work now because he's in the hospital. And so our group decides we're going to make meals for them for several weeks just to help out to do that. Well, it, it gets worse and worse, and this goes on for several months. And so our group couldn't do all the meals. We organized some other small groups in our church that they were brand new. Like, they'd only come a handful of times. And so our church starts doing more. We helped them with their mortgage. We did meals for several months. And little do we know that her family, her, she had a large family in the community, and they were coming over to help with the kids. But they were freaking out, like, they're saying, who are these people that, like, keep bringing meals over to your house? Like, what are they doing? This is incredible. Like your own family's not even doing this. And eventually over time, a majority of her family came to faith in Jesus Christ. They started coming to church because of what they saw in those unexpected circumstances and acts of kindness. You see, sometimes it's your example that will open the door before your words will ever have any impact. See, Paul's willingness to forego his deserved deliverance resulted in the deliverance of the jailer. Let me put that another way. The reason they would not get their freedom, Paul and Silas, at the expense of the jailer's life was because they realized they already had their freedom at the expense of Jesus' life. And now they were free to serve others. So it is with Jesus. 
Jesus was the first evangelist. Jesus put on human flesh. He stepped out of the comforts and glories of heaven to serve you and I. And Jesus, unlike Paul, he didn't just risk his life because Paul was eventually set free. Jesus didn't risk, just risk his life to set you free. He gave his life. He knew the moment he said yes to that plan and took on human flesh that he was a dead man walking. He knew it. There was no other option for him. But Jesus wasn't nearly as concerned with how comfortable he would be when he spent his 33 years on this earth because he wanted you and I to experience a joy and a comfort and a peace and a glory that far exceeds anything you can ever acquire here on this world. He wanted eternity for you. He wanted you to enjoy that with him. And the only way that could happen was for him to be momentarily imprisoned so that you and I could be set free. So what does that look like for us as a church whose mission is to share the gospel with our city? Let me start with this. If you're here today, maybe it's your first time, maybe you've been a handful of times, maybe you've been here for quite a while, like Lydia, you've been religious and you've talked about it, but maybe the gospel for the first time has struck your heart and God has opened your eyes to the truth of it. I want to let you know that, that trust in Jesus is the step. Like, like it says here, what do I need to do? The jailer asked, what do I need to do? Paul laid it right there. He didn't give him a list of 10 things. He said one thing, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That word believe in the gospels is better understood English to be trust, meaning trust in Jesus. Two things, you trust that his perfect life is what qualifies you for eternal life. His death on the cross is what forgives your sins. You can't do anything to be good enough. That's why there's no type for the gospel. You don't do anything in the gospel. He did it all. So believe it, he did that. Trust that his death covers your sins, whatever your background is. Trust that his righteous life makes you perfect. And I'd love to talk to you today if you have questions about that. We'd love to know that and come alongside you. Some of you have done that already. So what's, what's this message for us? Man, there's so much for us. One is stop making types of people whom you think God wants to save. We don't make that decision. God does. Look around you at the people you come in contact with. Some of the least likely will be the ones that will receive the gospel. But be wise enough to know how to approach them. Don't continue arguing with that person that you always get in arguments with about the gospel. Maybe they're like that jailer, hardened to it, and they don't need to hear more words. They need to see you love them in a way that makes no sense. Why would you be so kind to someone that makes fun of you all the time or ridicules you or has something out for you? You show them the gospel. Because it's no coincidence that you're there. 
Some of you are, are in a really difficult spot right now. You're wondering, God, why in the heck am I facing this medical situation? Or, or why is my job situation like this? Or why is this happening in my life? And, and you're asking all the whys about me instead of looking around and saying, who have you placed in my life in this season that I would never rub shoulders with unless this difficulty had come into my life? Because God may have lovingly orchestrated it because his purpose and mission in you is more important than your comfort in this world. Look around. God has people in your life that he wants you to share the gospel with. And how you do that could make a big difference. So as we close our service today, here's what, what we're going to ask you to do. Just, just take some time right now. If you haven't trusted Christ, this is a time to have that conversation. Tell him, I believe you. I see this. I believe you are who you said you are, Jesus, that you did that for me. For others, maybe it's people God will bring to your mind right now. And just pray, God, who in my life do you want me to share the gospel with? Who are those people and in what setting have you placed me to do that? And our worship team is just going to play for a few minutes, a few seconds, and just give you time to pray and, and do that and then invite you in to worship as we close today. Go ahead and pray.